Welcome back to Orthodox.Faith. This is John Harmon. And this is Ron Bentley. Ron, we've been in the Old Testament book of Ruth these past three episodes, and now it's time to wrap up this series. Yes. In this episode, we'll be working our way through the fourth and final chapter of Ruth. John, you've focused our attention very carefully on the narrative. I expected no less from an expert in Hebrew narrative. (laughs) That narrative has carefully developed a small cast of characters. So we're about to see the exciting conclusion for those characters. (laughs) Yeah, we've observed along the way that Naomi and her Moabite daughter-in-law, Ruth, had two needs when they returned to Bethlehem from Moab. Their husbands had died, so they were both widows, and Naomi had been living in the neighboring country of Moab for more than a decade, and Ruth had never lived in Israel. So these two women were vulnerable, and they would need to find a way to survive in the short run. Namely, they would need food. Yeah, that was the first need. The second need was for them to have some kind of stable source of long-term provision and protection. In that ancient setting, that would mean, ideally, a husband and a son. In other words, they needed the social and economic protection that marriage would provide. The burning question that ancient readers would perceive was, how could these two widows coming from abroad with nothing but each other ever find that? Yeah, that sounds like a God-sized need. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. In chapter two, Ruth met Boaz, a relative of her late husband's, who saw to it that they didn't starve. In chapter three, Naomi came up with a curious plan. Right. She sent Ruth essentially to propose to Boaz. Mm. As we said last time, socially, culturally, and economically, that made no sense, and it should have been a hopeless shot in the dark. But, as we know, when God is in control, anything is possible. When we left off last time, we had learned that Boaz wanted to exercise the role of guardian redeemer, or kinsman redeemer, and marry Ruth. However, another relative was closer and therefore ahead of him in line to acquire any family property and to marry Ruth. Well, where we pick up now is how will all this resolve? Will Naomi and Ruth be taken care of? In other words, will they experience a complete reversal of their previous tragic circumstances? Will they be given a future? And if so, with whom? So let's go take a look and find out. Ron, at this point in the story, we're waiting for Boaz to sort out with his other relative if and how the duty of the family guardian redeemer will be carried out. By the way, Ron, what's the Hebrew word for guardian redeemer? Go ale. I remember (laughs) that one. Yes. Now, as chapter four opens, we might say that, in a sense, court is in session. Right, but not the guilt or innocence kind of proceedings. The scene takes us to a very public area, the town gate. Boaz sat down at the town gate, which is where the elders of the town often sat to conduct the business of the community. They would solve problems, hear grievances, render verdicts, and witness transactions. You're right. This was a very public scene. It wasn't something that was handled quietly in a back room or under the table. Whatever happened there would be well known by the town, and it would be easy to prove if there were ever any questions about what went on or what agreements were reached. So Boaz sat down at the gate and summoned Poloni Almoni. Okay. (laughs) This is a very interesting narrative choice, Ron, because that's not a name. It's not a relationship. It's not a title. It just means a certain one. Okay. We might say 
Mr. So-and-so. <laughs> all right. Uh, English translations don't usually capture this at all. They typically say friend uh-huh. such that it would read, come over, friend, sit down here, or turn aside, friend, and sit here. The author could have named him or made no reference to him, but this was the chosen phrase. Okay. Boaz, of course, would have known the man's name, and, and he certainly would have used it. Why didn't he? Well, hold that thought, and let's see what this particular character does. As far as I can tell, we don't know the exact relationship between Boaz and this guardian redeemer. But what matters is that the other relative had the first claim in this situation, and Boaz had the second. So that's the relationship that counts here. Right. Agreed. So Boaz and this certain someone, what did you say? Poloni? Almoni. Poloni Almoni are sitting together (laughs) and Boaz gathered around them 10 of the elders of the town. That's a lot. The law did not require 10 elders, but with 10, it's abundantly clear that whatever decision was made there would stick. And like you said, John, it's such a public place with so many trusted town elders. There will be no question about what was agreed to. Hmm transparency and integrity. (laughs) Apparently, those were important back then. Uh (laughs) In any case, Boaz first raises the issue of redeeming Naomi's land in connection with the guardian redeemer's role in Leviticus 25. Naomi had land, but she was poor. We don't know how much land was involved, but apparently she wasn't deriving any income from it. On the surface, that might sound like a contradiction. Naomi had land, but was poor. That's true, but it was the case. And it could have been for a couple of different reasons. Remember that Naomi and Elimelech left Bethlehem at a time of food shortage sometime more than a decade before. That's a lot of time. In that period, someone else might have been controlling the land, or it could have just been left fallow and unproductive, or the property might have been mortgaged. We just don't know the financial details that accompanied their departure to Moab, so we can only speculate on why things stood as they did when Naomi and Ruth returned. Okay, so the relative, this unnamed Goel, takes the deal. He agrees to acquire the land, but then Boaz springs the rest of the story on him. Right. He next brings up Ruth and her concerns. He raises the ante by reminding him that he also needs to fulfill Deuteronomy 25 and marry Ruth. We mentioned in the last episode, though, that neither of these men is technically obligated under the law to marry a widow. The guardian redeemer didn't have to perform the duty of brother-in-law under Deuteronomy 25 unless he was, in fact, a brother-in-law, which neither of them were, right? Exactly. It doesn't seem to have been a legal obligation, strictly speaking, but it does seem in this context that it was a moral obligation. Mm, Okay. In that culture, because family survival was really at the heart of the issue, they looked at these things together. Items like these were not as easily separated like they are now. The Guardian Redeemer was well aware of the needs that Deuteronomy 25 intended to address, and those needs persisted in this case. It seems like the community looked at this situation as part of the Guardian Redeemer's duty, if not his legal requirement. Well, when Boaz brought up the fact that the Guardian Redeemer must marry Ruth if he redeemed the land, the relative says he could not be the Redeemer. Now, this is interesting because he just said before witnesses that he would redeem the land, and now he backs out. Yes, he completely reverses himself. It's unlikely that he had no idea that something like this was involved. I think the relative probably thought that if the deal involved a marriageable widow, it would be Naomi. 
And that makes a big difference. Any son from a marriage with Elimelech's family would inherit whatever the relative had redeemed. It'd be passed down that child's line and so would not remain in the redeemer's family if he had a family. Exactly. And if there were more than one son, the first would inherit all of Elimelech's property and the rest would be eligible to share the guardian redeemer's inheritance with any other half-siblings. All that's to say that the arrival of additional children as a result of this transaction would dilute the guardian redeemer's estate. Oh, okay. But Naomi was likely past childbearing years. Uh, okay. So there would be no threat to him if he married her. Right. He'd simply be making a profitable land purchase. He would only have to support Naomi, and everything would stay in his family. But Ruth, on the other hand, might bear several sons. And as you just said, the first would be eligible to claim all of Elimelech's property. The others would share the guardian redeemer's inheritance. The difference to the guardian redeemer between Naomi and Ruth then is fairly significant. In the end, it looked like it was a deal killer for him. Yeah. While we don't know all of the details, the way this plays out gives a very strong indication that the guardian redeemer is looking out for himself rather than fulfilling his duty. He says to Boaz, I cannot redeem it for myself without damaging my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. He was fine with one responsibility, but not so much with the other. So he formally surrenders his option to act as guardian redeemer with the giving of the sandal. The text explains the custom of taking off a sandal. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one took off a sandal and gave it to the other. That's chapter 4, verse 7. The sandal seems to have been an important symbolic part of the transaction. It does, but it seems to have been a custom that had passed from use by the time the author wrote this. That's why the author explains its meaning in this sort of parenthetical aside that you read in verse 7. John, when we talked about the law that required a deceased man's brother to marry his widow in Deuteronomy 25, the sandal was a symbol there too, wasn't it? In that case, if the brother refused to fulfill his duty, his sandal was removed and he was spat on. Yeah, that's exactly right. To review, Deuteronomy 25, 8-10 says, If he persists, saying, I don't want to marry her, then his sister-in-law must approach him in view of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, and spit in his face. She will then respond, Thus may it be done to any man who does not maintain his brother's family line. His family name will be referred to in Israel as the family of the one whose sandal was removed. But here, even though the unnamed relative won't marry Ruth, the narrator doesn't seem to be pointing to that law when he mentions the sandal, at least not directly. This really seems confusing. What's what's going on with the sandal in this case? You're right that we expect one thing with the sandal and seem to get another. Neither Naomi nor Ruth removes the man's sandal, nor does either spit in his face. He takes off his own shoe and hands it to Boaz. And as we've said, he wasn't legally obligated to marry her, so he's not in violation of that law that we just read. Right. The community might look down on him for his selfishness and his failure to meet an expectation that the culture had of him, but it doesn't look like he's formally condemned under the law. So in the eyes of the people, though, he's probably still the bad guy, so to speak. I think so. The surrender of the sandal symbolized the surrender of the land, or, or at least his claim on it. There's actually other ancient Near Eastern evidence that supports understanding the sandal as a symbol of the right to tread on the land. 
That is a, a symbol of ownership. Ah, that brings up something like Joshua 1, when God tells Joshua, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you. Exactly. There seems to be a cultural connection between walking on the land and possessing it, hence the involvement of the sandal. So this seems to have been a surrender of the relative's claim to the property and all of its related rights. But I can't help but notice that the man is still standing there without a sandal. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe the ancient reader was meant to picture that image and sense that the story is still condemning him for failing to marry Ruth as part of his responsibility as guardian redeemer. I wonder that too. But of course, Ron, we have to flash the speculation sign here. <laughs> Fair enough. It's hard to be sure on this one. However, at the same time that we stand in the glow of the speculation sign, <laughs> I'll circle back to the matter of why the relative with whom Boaz interacts doesn't get a name. Okay. Does the author's choice to call him Mr. So-and-so or John Doe or a certain one or however we translate that, does it reflect an attempt to shame the man for his failure to act? Mm. Names are important in Hebrew narrative. Did the author blot it out in judgment? I can't help but wonder. But Ron, we're we're committed to intellectual responsibility and integrity, so <laughs> I'll admit that I may be pushing it. It's an informed and disciplined pushing, but in the end, we just don't know. Fair enough. Well, the last thing we see in the scene is Boaz publicly formalizing the agreement verbally. He uses very clear and careful language to summarize exactly what is being agreed to and why. Then the many witnesses in this case not only confirm, but also bless the transaction. The property is Boaz's, and he is taking Ruth as his wife. It's a done deal. In the next section, God enables fulfillment of the long-term need that we've been talking about. The narrator clearly sees God in control of what's happening here and even names the Lord's name, Yahweh, as the one behind what happens next. Ruth conceives and bears a son who is named Obed. I noticed this is the last mention of Ruth in the book, and there's no mention of her being a Moabite when she comes up now. Is that significant? I think it is. When she marries Boaz, she is, in effect, an Israelite. Okay. She is a full-fledged member of the covenant community. I think we mentioned in a previous episode, Ron, that Gentiles were always eligible to join the covenant community. They were never excluded if they wanted to be a part of God's covenant people. And we see an example of that right here. Well, the women of Bethlehem offered their praise to Yahweh and they bless Naomi. It's pretty clear that they all, and hopefully the reader too, understand that without Yahweh's blessing, none of this happens. It's ultimately because of God and God alone that this outcome has come to pass. Interestingly, they refer to Ruth and Boaz's son Obed as the guardian redeemer, not Boaz. So with his arrival, Obed restored life to a dead branch of the family. That's verse 15 here in chapter 4. So they see the redemptive work of his presence, and they identify him also with this role. Uh, plus, Obed presumably would be the one to care for Ruth in her old age, so he would carry on Boaz's role as provider and protector into the future. Also, remember at the end of chapter 1, when Naomi and Ruth returned to Bethlehem, Naomi instructed the women to call her bitter right? because the Lord had made her empty or empty-handed. Mm -hmm. Here in chapter 4 is the women's final answer to that instruction. Blessed be the Lord 
who has not left you this day without a redeemer. You know, the women also exclaimed that Naomi has a son. Uh, this whole closing section seems to feature Naomi rather than Ruth. I, I guess that further finishes off the point you mentioned that was made in chapter one. Naomi said it was impossible for her to have a son. She was empty, and yet her life is not empty now. Right. And Ruth gets a huge compliment here, too. The women refer to Ruth as one who is more to you, Naomi, than seven sons. Better than seven sons. That is a statement that has great rhetorical force. In that culture, sons were especially valued, and seven is a number of completeness or perfection. Seven sons would be their notion of an ideal family. So this is a powerful hyperbole. Ruth, the former Moabite widow, is even better than that. She is and has been Naomi's ideal family and then some. Now, Naomi doesn't speak in this closing scene, does she? No. We can only wonder what she might have been thinking. Her losses of the past, of course, were no less real. Her husband and two sons were still gone, and her circumstances were challenging and no doubt had left some scars. There's no sense here that anyone or anything has been replaced, but there is definitely the sense that although she was once hopeless, God has redeemed her. He has redeemed her life. She has the means for economic survival and care into her old age. She has family and community. She has her covenant God who has not failed her in faithfulness and whose loyal love she has experienced through Ruth and now through Boaz and presumably through the next generation. Her new circumstances seem to speak for her. Well, speaking of the next generation, the narrative proper ends with the note that Obed was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So Obed was Jesse's father and King David's grandfather. Yeah, it's obvious that the author has something to say here by linking Boaz and Ruth to David. This story, of course, or at least this part of it, was written and would be read later on at a future point during or after the lifetime of David. One of the effects of this mention would have been to show that David's kingship was not a result of shrewd politics or clever human tactics, but a result of God's divine preservation of a godly family line. Therefore, the thinking would go, Israel should accept David and his descendants as king. The book of Ruth ends with a genealogy. It's an epilogue of sorts, and it reflects the prayers of blessing that were made when Boaz and Ruth got married. Earlier in the chapter, those who witnessed the transaction between Boaz and his relatives said, May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. And later, when Obed was born, the women of the town had prayed, May his name be renowned in Israel. Now, one might ask if just making the connection between Boaz, Obed, and David in verse 17 at the close of the story proper would have been enough. Mm -hmm. But you're right, Ron. The genealogy in the epilogue connects the family with Judah through his and Tamar's son, Perez. Uh, Tamar, by the way, like Ruth, was not an Israelite, and she was in the very position that Deuteronomy 25 describes. 
Uh, Tamar was a young widow who was eligible to marry one of her late husband's brothers in order to carry on the line and the inheritance. (laughs) But that's another story that we don't have time to get into here, but it's certainly part of the reason the connection is made to it in Ruth. I seem to recall that is a wild story by itself, but fair enough. (laughs) We can't even begin to cover that ground here. In any case, the genealogy here at the end of Ruth shows that the prayer's were answered. Right. And we should point out as well that not all genealogies are complete. Often, the idea in a genealogy isn't to be comprehensive, it's to make a theological point. And, and that seems to be the case here in the epilogue to Ruth. You mean there don't seem to be enough generations to get from Judah to David? Yes, but we can observe that there are exactly 10 names in the genealogy, which follows the pattern we see in Genesis 5 and 11. And we find Boaz's name in the seventh position, which has symbolic significance. It focuses attention on Boaz and his prominence in the family, as well as his connection to the tribe of Judah and to the ideal Israelite king, David. We pointed out in the first episode that the story of Ruth takes place in the time of the judges, that chaotic period before Israel had a king. That was a difficult time to be an Israelite that observed the law. In different language, you might say it was a tough time to be faithful. Theologically, though, the genealogy in Ruth demonstrates that God continued to work faithfully among the Israelites, even when the times were hard. In other words, as always, God was faithful even when the people themselves were having trouble. I think that's a key part of the message. God was with Naomi and Ruth the whole time. God honored and rewarded the sacrificial love of Ruth and Boaz and used it to care for the needy. And this redemptive way that God works sometimes surpasses imagination and transcends individuals' lifetimes. It certainly did in this case, and the genealogy brings this out. You know, this would later be relevant to Christians. Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, that final and ultimate king who would rule the earth, he descends from this family. John, some modern readers might see this story as something of a rags-to-riches story. Other theological types I've studied with would be quick to claim that Naomi and Ruth represent the poor. They might be eager to demonstrate that this genealogy ties David to humble origins. Well, Ron, in its ancient context, I doubt how significant that is. Mm -hmm. It is true that we're dealing with someone who is not noble, someone who lacks significant social standing. Right. But more significant than Ruth's economic position is her ethnicity. Okay. Here is someone that is not initially part of Israel. God rewards her faithfulness, though, her deliberate decision to be counted with Israel, and she becomes quite literally a mother of kings. Ron, we noticed at the beginning of this series that this whole book is only 85 verses. A lot happens in 85 verses. Uh, Definitely. You know, we think of this as a love story, and maybe it is. Maybe it is. But it's an ancient love story with nuance and concerns that are often lost on modern readers. Mm -hmm. The emphasis is on loyalty and sacrifice, while the feelings and romance that we moderns associate with love stories is very much in the background. Got it. Well, that points to the fact that what we really have here is a story of redemption. For those that don't know, that's a fairly important theme in the Bible. Most of us in the modern English-speaking world, we hear the word redemption and we think of something theological. In the ancient world, though, it was intensely practical. There was something very specific in the ancient mind when they used or heard terms like redemption or redeemer. To redeem in the ancient world referred to buying something back Mm -hmm. or releasing someone or something by means of payment. 
paying a price for it. Sometimes the word ransom is used to convey the idea. In the Old Testament, there are provisions for when a person or an animal was set apart to God. They could be restored or redeemed to ordinary use by making a redemption payment. The same is true for land and property and even people. They could be bought back for a price from foreclosure because of debt or from slavery. I've heard that Exodus, the story of the people of Israel leaving Egypt, that's presented as the great redemption story of the Old Testament, isn't it? It's deliverance from foreign bondage, is it not? Yes. The idea of deliverance travels very closely with redemption, and the Exodus is the Old Testament example of redemption par excellence. We didn't touch on it in this series, Ron, but the title Goel Mm -hmm. is frequently ascribed to God, especially in Isaiah. Yahweh is the Redeemer of Israel. Remember, the Goel is the one who secures redemption. God's deliverance or God's salvation are often couched in these terms of deliverance that would be secured at a price. The promised Messiah was to be a redeemer also, was he not? Right. The coming salvation that is mentioned in redemptive terms in the Old Testament comes together with the coming of the Messiah who would have the specific role of redeemer. And all of that carries through to the New Testament. Yeah, definitely. There are several key places where Paul reaches specifically for that language as he describes the work of Jesus. Uh, you see it especially in the vicinity of some of the most frequently quoted passages of Romans. All has sinned and fall short of the glory of God, for instance. That's Romans 3. Paul follows it immediately with the observation that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Uh, Luke also reached for that language. He did it in both Luke and Acts. Another one that comes to my mind, Ron, was Jesus' own description of his ministry. In Mark 10, it reads, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That really encapsulates the ancient idea that lay behind redemption to me. Ah, yeah, right. We modern readers rarely have occasion to think in terms of ransom. Any story that involves a ransom is completely alien to us. But as you've pointed out, that's central to the New Testament story. Yeah, and it was central to Ruth as well. But Ron, that's as far as we can go on that topic for now. And that will wrap it up for this episode and this series. We're beginning a new series with the next episode, and it's going to be very different. For those who don't know, John and I try to bounce around between various topics. Much of what we do is essentially direct commentary on Scripture. The focus, at least, is on a specific portion of Scripture, and here it was Ruth. Prior to that, it was the Gospel of John. Exactly. We try to spend some time in the Old Testament and then some time in the New. That emphasizes a theme that's absolutely central to what we do. The Old and New Testaments are of one piece. You cannot have a New Testament without the Old. That's right. We've said it over and over. The God of the New Testament is the same God as the God of the Old Testament. The New Testament makes no sense without the Old. Interspersed with these direct commentaries on Scripture, though, we also like to take occasional detours through overtly theological content or sometimes church history. And the next series does just that. It's theology with a historical twist. John, I think you've said these theological forays aren't your native territory. (laughs) I think we'll be okay. That's what you're here for. (laughs) It's a great strength of yours, and I always learn a lot. Just as you've said, you learned some things when we work through sections of the Old Testament. Right. Plus, you have assured me that we'll never be far from Scripture. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Uh, Christians are always constructing their understanding of God and creation's relationship to God through Scripture. In any case, we're titling this next series, Faith and Reason. 
We're going to look at several instances where Christians throughout history attempted to express the reasonableness of their faith, and we'll preface all that with some observations of our own. Ron, we try hard to make this podcast an intellectually responsible account of Scripture and our faith. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't surprise anyone that we consider our faith reasonable as well. Right, and that's it for this episode and this series. For more information about this podcast and our other activities, please do see our website at ortho.com. Docs.faith. That's O-R-T-H-O-D-O-C-S dot F-A-I-T-H. Thank you for listening.